Let's pray. And now, Father, we come to this point in the service where we gladly open your book and ask you, Lord, to teach us more than that, feed us. May this be a feast for our souls today, bringing health and vitality. May we be better equipped to battle sin, to share the gospel, and to rejoice in you, worship you, because of our time together here. So we thank you, Father, for this text and for the privilege that it is today to talk about the things that are here that mean so much to you and will, I hope, at the end of this message mean so much to all of us at Calvary Bible Church. Lord, these things we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We are back together today, returning to our study in Colossians this morning, and it's worth refreshing on Paul's train of thought so far. I think it will pay us to be patient this morning and walk through these things carefully. So let's think about this. In chapter 1, Paul extols for the Colossians and for us the preeminence of Christ as the eternal creator God who is on a cosmic mission of reconciliation. The Father's plan, according to chapter 1, verse 20, is that through Christ, he will reconcile all things to himself, whether things in heaven or in earth, by making peace through the blood of Jesus' cross. This is God's mission in the world. Did you know that God has a mission in the world? He's not just watching us spin round and round. He is doing something. He has a mission. And that mission was playing out in the ancient city of Colossae as many pagan men and women heard the gospel, repented of their sins, and found reconciliation with God by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, in the mystery of his sovereign grace, God actually chose the greatest persecutor of the church to deliver the gospel to the Gentiles, which was predominantly the kind of people that made up the church in Colossae. Paul, as you know, took his mission very seriously. And by the time he wrote this letter before us this morning, he was already 25 years into his life's work as an apostle and was approximately, I was delighted to discover, I'm not sure delighted is the appropriate adjective, but he was about my age when he wrote this letter. I am, I know it doesn't look like it, but I am 56 years old. And Paul was about 55, 56 when he wrote this letter. And he must have been a man of superb health and energy because it's obvious that nothing short of death could keep him from fulfilling his mission. Indeed, he seems to reflect on that commitment when he says to this small, insignificant Gentile church in Colossae, chapter 1, verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And oh, how much suffering Paul endured. Nevertheless, he could almost ref reflectively respond to any question about his suffering by saying, what he said to the elders of Ephesus in Miletus in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, when he said this, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my mission and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what he lived for. For Paul... The privilege of this ministry was reward enough. He got to be the one to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of God's mystery, which is Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, a few weeks ago, when we were studying that passage, chapter 1, verse 27 in particular, we learned 
Now, what Paul was alluding to just there is what theologians for centuries have called union with Christ, the doctrine of union with Christ. The passage before us is pregnant with allusions to our union with Christ. In that previous sermon, I said that apart from Christ, we have nothing, absolutely nothing from God. Apart from Christ, we have nothing from God, aside from his common grace. Beyond that, we have nothing from God. But in Christ, we have everything the Father has ever promised. Now, because the text before us includes so many references to our union with Christ, and because I don't think we can grasp Paul's meaning in this text without understanding union with Christ, I want to spend the majority of our time this morning unpacking this deep, rich, and practical truth more than I've done before. And I think, as we do this, you are going to find this to be a priceless treasure, this doctrine. And you will come back to it again and again. It will be a treasure that you will want to dig into and pull things out of for the rest of your life. And since this is going to be something of a treasure hunt, uh, we're going to need a map. And so, let me take a, a minute to show you how I intend to get us there. There are five parts to our outline this morning, so we're really going to have to keep things moving if we hope to get done uh, and reach our destination before our time expires. So here we go. With the time remaining, I want to take you on a rapid, a kind of a speed hike, a speed excursion into the doctrine of union with Christ. And there is so much about union with Christ that I won't have time even to mention this morning. And so I encourage you to grab a systematic theology or something like that and just dig in. So when we are done, I hope that you will have a better grasp of, number one, the meaning of union with Christ, number two, the benefits of union with Christ, number three, the pictures of union with Christ, and the language of union with Christ, and then finally, the practice of union with Christ. So, as always, before we get started, let's stand together and read the book. Read this passage, Colossians 1, I'm sorry, Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Colossians 2, 6 through 15. And here is what Paul says. Therefore, as you have received Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you, my very tiny little congregation, may be seated. And before we get started, 
Let's, uh, before we get too deeply into this, I think, let's, let's begin where we should begin by defining our terms. I'm not going to give you a formal definition, but let's think about the meaning of union with Christ. Union with Christ, listen carefully, union with Christ is all about how God thinks about you. Union with Christ is all about how God thinks about believers, And the way God thinks about believers has everything to do with Jesus Christ. Now let me make an important statement that you will want to uh, remember. And here it is. God never thinks about you apart from Christ. God never thinks about you apart from Christ. Some of you have thoughts that blow through your heart about what God must think of you. And I just wonder today, what do you think God thinks about you? Some of you think God hates you or God is put out with you. And um, that's not how God thinks about you. God never thinks about you apart from Christ. This is why Jesus, in his prayer in John chapter 17, could say that the Father loves us even as he loves his own son. He never thinks about us apart from Christ. There's never a time, not even when we sin egregiously, that he thinks about us apart from Christ. I I just hope that you will meditate on that. Let it sink into your soul. It doesn't mean that God God doesn't discipline. He does discipline. He does discipline but he loves you. He loves you as he loves his son. And Christ has paid your debt for you. And in Christ, he gives you the power to do everything that he wants you to do. God never thinks about you apart from Jesus. Now, the term union with Christ appears so many times in the New Testament. For example, we're told in Ephesians 1, this famous text, everybody knows this text, and here's here's just a statement from it, Ephesians 1, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It was in Christ that we were predestined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory, verses 11 and 12 say. Later on in the New Testament, we learn that God saved and called us in Christ before the beginning of time. 2 Timothy 1.9. Beloved, meditate on this. Don't let this fly by you as a doctrinal dissertation. I'm trying to be very pastoral here. You need to learn this. Before God created the world, he was already thinking about you in relation to Jesus Christ. On the other hand, God was also already thinking of Christ as your representative. In fact, the reason he thinks about us at all is because the Father made Jesus our representative. That means, listen carefully, when Christ lived in the world, never sinning, always perfectly fulfilling the Father's will, He did so as our representative. When Christ died on the cross, he did so as our representative. When he rose again from the dead, he did so as our representative. And in the mind of God, you were represented in his life, death, and resurrection. Listen to me. This is why Jesus came. He didn't come just to see what it was like to live in the world. He could have observed that from afar. But he came for this purpose, to be our representative, very much like Adam was our representative. And when Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father, he did so as our representative. He represented us, and we were represented by him on God's throne. 
And this explains why Paul can say in Ephesians 2.6 that we, listen to the past tense, we have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. You say, well, it doesn't feel like I'm sitting on the throne. When God thinks about you, he thinks about you in Christ, who is on the throne. The implications of that are staggering. Now, you may ask, why did God think of Jesus as our representative even before the foundation of the world? And the answer to that question is both brief and profound. The Father began thinking of Christ as our representative when he entered into covenant with him. Consider this. Before God did anything pertaining to creation, God the Father entered into covenant with God the Son to give him a host of people who cannot be numbered, who would be holy and blameless before him. Theologians call this the pactum salutis. Pactum, you know what a, a pact is like a covenant when you make a pact with someone. And this is what God the Father and God the Son did. Before they created the world, God entered covenant with the Son, as it were, and promised him a people who will be to the praise of his glory forever and forever. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews calls this the eternal covenant. Hebrews 13.20. And it is because of this eternal covenant that God thinks of you as in Christ, as united with Christ. So, in summary, union with Christ is all about Jesus performing his work of reconciliation as the divine representatives of sinners. Second, let's think about the benefits of our union, or the benefits of our union with Christ. The benefits of our union with Christ can hardly be overstated and certainly can't be exhausted in a short sermon like this one. As I said in the previous sermon, everything that we have from God comes to us through Jesus Christ, and nothing that we have from God comes to us by any means other than through Christ. For example, let me name three of the most important that are ours in Christ. First, we receive justification because of union with Christ. Now, what does justification mean? Well, justification means that God reckons us or declares us to be righteous based on the actual righteousness of Christ. As I already said, when Christ lived perfectly, righteously, in full obedience to the Father. He was doing that as our representative so that his righteousness could be imputed to us. He was our representative. You may remember that Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, well how, how righteous is that? Can you quantify that? And Jesus says, certainly I can. Matthew 5, uh, later on in Matthew 5, he says this, Therefore, you must be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, if you're going to live forever in heaven, you ready? You got to be as good as God. You got to be as righteous as he is righteous. And you'll say, well, that's not fair. I mean, where do we get that kind of righteousness? Where can we get that kind of righteousness? We can't, we can't get it by earning it or by somehow attaining it. No, we get it in Christ. It is Christ's righteousness. And if we belong to him, if we are united to him, along with him, we get everything he has. And in this case, namely, righteousness. The righteousness 
that every sinner desperately needs, doesn't have, and can't earn. We get it from Christ. With Jesus as our representative, God thinks of us as righteous. How good is that? God thinks of you as righteous. It's not that your sin doesn't matter, but he thinks of you as righteous. With Jesus as our representative, God thinks of us as righteous, even as Christ is righteous. And it comes to us, not by works, but by faith in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And so, in Christ we receive justification, even though we are sinners. God declares us righteous in Christ. Now, if you're a thinking person, you probably got all kinds of questions about this. And, and I'm just giving you an introduction to this. And there is much more that can be said and should be said in a different form. But just know that if you are in Christ, you get Christ's righteousness. That's how God sees you. Second, we receive new life. We receive new life when we embrace the gospel and receive the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. God grants us eternal what? Eternal life. Or as he refers to it as new life. Paul repeatedly speaks of two realms, the realm of death and sin and the realm of life in Christ. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.10, our Savior, Christ Jesus, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel brings life. And because of its life-giving power, Paul calls the gospel... Here's a term that Paul uses in Philippians for the gospel. He calls it the word of life. The word of life. Well, being rescued from the realm of darkness and brought into the light is the same thing as saying that we are brought out of death and into life. Whereas we once were dead in our trespasses and sins, now we are alive together with Christ and alive to God. The fruit of this reality is actually change in the life of the believer. If you have this new life, when you receive this new life in Christ, something happens. Something happens. You are not instantaneously made perfected. No, no, no. But you begin moving toward the likeness of Christ. Your desires change in Christ. If you are in Christ, guess what? He never changes. On the other hand, you must change if you are in him. In Christ, the old self has died and the new self has burst into life. Now you are, as Paul says famously, a new creature, a new creation in Christ. Now, you who once hated God, you love him. And though you despised his word, now you love to read the scriptures, and you love the people of God, and you love the gospel, and you want others to love Christ. You want others to love the gospel. You want others to love his word. And, and you're baffled as to why they don't because you love it so much. From what does a sinner receive such life? There's only one source, namely, Jesus Christ. If you are, here's another union word, if you are immersed in him, his life is counted by God as your life. So, the first two benefits of union with Christ are justification and new life. But there's a third. We also, as a result of union with Christ, we also receive the Holy Spirit. The man or woman who's united with Christ is also said to be in the Spirit. If you can think of yourself as in Christ, 
then you can also think of yourself as in the Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says we are, because of Christ, in the Spirit. And the reason any of us has the indwelling Spirit of God is because God thinks of us in the Son of God, in Christ. Listen, we tend to think that the first thing that happens is that the Holy Spirit comes and takes you by the hand and says, come on now, let's let's shake that sin out of you. Let's bring you to repentance and grab you by the scruff of the neck. We're going to bring you to Jesus. You know, like, like Andrew did with his brother. Hey, come and see, come and see. That's not the way it works. When you come to Christ, when God unites you with Christ, then you get everything that is Christ's. And one of the things that is Christ's is his spirit. You get the Holy Spirit. Now listen carefully. No one interacts with the Holy Spirit apart from Christ. The only place one can find the Spirit is in Christ. And of course, there are many other benefits that the Christian enjoys, often without even knowing it, that are ours because God considers us united with Christ. So, we've discussed the meaning of the union with Christ, the benefits of union with Christ. Thirdly, let's think about the biblical pictures of union. There are five of them. The Word of God offers at least five pictures of the believer's union with Christ, and most of them will be familiar to you. The first picture is that of a building and its foundation. In Ephesians Paul speaks of Christ as the cornerstone or the foundation. In Christ, the whole building, Paul says, is being fitted together and is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also are in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so Being united with Christ is something like a temple being erected upon a foundation or the cornerstone. And Paul is arguing, if we're going to use this metaphor, this analogy, Christ is that cornerstone. Everything is established on him. He is the rock. He is the stability. This is a reference to the grounds of our union, the grounds of our union, is Christ. Second, a man and his wife. This is the second picture, a man and his wife. Paul's classic statement in Ephesians 5 speaks to this metaphor. For this cause, he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, Paul says, but I am speaking in reference to Christ and his church, Christ and his church. This is a reference to both headship, as the husband is the head of the wife, and also intimacy, intimacy between husband and wife. This is a part, this is, there is something about union with Christ that includes his leadership over us and our intimacy, our intimate relationship of love with him. Third, the third picture is the vine and the branches, and we're all familiar with this depiction from John 15, where he says, I am the vine, and, and I'm, I'm going to shorten this a little bit for time, but you can go back and read all of 15. I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me, abide in me. And I in you, you see union there, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. Nothing that pleases the Lord. Nothing that honors Christ. 
Nothing related specifically to his mission in this world. This is the vine and the branches, and it's a picture of the life source or power source of our union with Christ. If we are not in Christ, we have no power, no life to accomplish anything good for God. We are outside of Christ, and we get nothing from God apart from him. You're like a branch that has been broken off of the vine, and it's laying there on the ground, it dries up, and it's fit for nothing but, as Jesus says, but to be thrown into the fire. It's useless to him. But when you are, when you are in Christ and abiding in Christ, you bear much fruit for his glory and for your own great joy. This, beloved, comes about through union with Christ. We are not merely individuals relating to Christ. The fourth one is the picture of the body and its head. The body and its head. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says, The body is one, and yet it has many members. And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you think that he would say, so also are Christians? No, 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 no. He's saying, so also is Christ. This is all about union with Christ. Jesus is the head. We collectively are his body. This is a reference to the unifying dynamic of mutual union with Christ. It's not just me and Jesus. It's us and Jesus. It's not just me individually who is united to Christ. It is us collectively who are also united to Christ. He is the head. We collectively are his body. And this is a reference to the unifying dynamic of mutual union in Christ. We are not merely individuals. We are now the community of Christ. And then fifth, and finally, and the one that some theologians I read this week said is most important. Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, Paul paints us a picture of two races of men. One is the race of the ungenerate who are in Adam and remain in Adam. That race is under a sentence of death, all of them. The second Adam, Christ, is the head of the second corporate group, the other race. Adam and the Messiah are pictured as representative of two humanities. Those who live in solidarity with the first Adam make up a, the first body, and those in solidarity with Christ constitute the other body. These two bodies, or races of men, provide the only two categories that are open to mankind. You either belong to Adam or you belong to Christ. Hence, Paul speaks about you being in Adam or in Christ. And, and, and here's the difference if you're in Adam. In Adam, listen, listen carefully, in Adam, all die. In Christ, all live. In Adam, death reigns. In Christ, life reigns. In Adam, there is nothing but sin. It is all sin. In Christ, all are righteous in his sight. In Adam, sin rules. In Christ, grace rules. In Adam, man is a slave to sin. And in Christ, we are enslaved joyfully to Christ. This is truly amazing, beloved. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as all die, so also in Christ, all in Adam die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. These are the biblical pictures of union. And they help us to grasp something of the glory of what God has done for us in, this, in the sheer impulse of his grace. Next, let's consider, number five, the language of union. 
the language of union. There are a couple of key terms that Paul uses to signify union with Christ. When you're reading the Bible, just be aware of these. Write them in your Bible somewhere. Write this list in your Bible. It's a short list. The first is in Christ. In Christ, and you already knew that. Union with Christ is frequently spoken of as in Christ. In fact, so predominant is this phrase that it is virtually interchangeable with other New Testament expressions, such as salvation. In Christ is synonymous with salvation or new life, synonymous with new life in Christ and new life. So we're not surprised to find Paul alternating back and forth among the expressions in Christ, in the Spirit, or even in the faith. All of it assumes union with Christ. They are virtually the same teachings. Paul is so fond of using this phrase, it appears in his 13 letters, you ready for this? 164 times. This was no throwaway prepositional phrase. He didn't, he didn't just write it by habit. He intentionally used in Christ 164 times in his letters to indicate the connection between the work of God which Christ has completed and the believers, the blessings that the believers receive. For example, in Ephesians 1, Paul says that in Christ the believer is chosen. Verse 4, he's graced. Verse 6, He's redeemed, verse 7. He's reconciled, verse 10. He's destined, verse 11. He's sealed, verse 13. All these precious promises of God come to us rapid fire. And they would come to us not at all apart from Christ. The second key term Paul uses to signify union is baptism. Isn't that interesting? When Paul uses the word baptism, he's he's not always talking about water. He's talking about something else. In fact, this is what I want to spend our time on here. This is not water baptism. It is a spiritual immersion into Christ. It is a baptism by which we are dunked. We are immersed as it were, into Christ, which is just another way of saying that we are in union with him. Romans 6, 1 through 11, the key passage on this in the book of Romans and and probably uh, the most thorough passage in the Bible on union with Christ. Randy read it a little while ago in our service and it speaks of, listen to these terms, And by the way, when I say listen to these terms, we are going to get to Colossians here in a minute, and you're going to see these terms. So, Paul uses the term baptism to argue that death to sin comes when we are united to Christ. So here's the the logic. If you're a slave, you're a slave for life. The only way out of slavery is death. But in Christ... You died when he died. And when he raised, was raised, you were raised. Death to sin comes when we are united with Christ. For a moment, just turn with me briefly to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Let me just give you a, a fresh taste of it. Listen to his words. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, this is, this is not water baptism, all of you who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For 
If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Listen, when Jesus rose again from the dead, there were things that were quite different about him. And we don't have time to go into all of that. But what I want, want you to see, and, and I'm getting ahead on application here, is that the same should happen to us. When we've died with Christ, when we rose again, we, rose, we arose to new life. We are united with him in his resurrection. Again, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, For in one spirit we were all, here's that word again, baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Why? Because we are in Christ. We were baptized into Christ when you got saved you know, it's, it's hard and it's dangerous to picture what this must be like conceptually. But here is Christ, and you are baptized into him. And when you are in him, there is the Spirit of God. There is all the wisdom of God, all the majesty of God. God's life is there. God's power is there. Everything that God has promised us is there. And so when we are baptized into Christ, we're all made to drink of one spirit. We get the spirit as we get baptized into Christ, which is just another way of saying we have been saved. We have been born again. Again, Galatians 3.27, we read, For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. I mean, can there be any truth in the Bible more precious to the child of God? This is so simple. It just simplifies everything. Brings it all into Christ. Now turn back with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And allow me a moment to direct your attention to similar terms in our passage in Colossians. Notice with me the following proposition, prepositional phrases. Number one, in chapter 2, verse 3, he directs us to Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now what's he saying? You're looking for wisdom and knowledge. Don't look to the false teachers you are in Christ. He himself is the great treasure chest of all wisdom and knowledge. You are in Christ. You already have it all. Why would you turn to anything else? Chapter 2, verse 6. As you received Christ, Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Live in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 10. And you have been filled in him. 2.11, in him you have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That is, you have entered into covenant with God, with Christ, unto salvation. Chapter 2, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him. You see the same terms. This is Paul pointing us to union with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 13, God made you alive together with him. And chapter 3, and this is my favorite one, perhaps because in years past, uh, it, it seemed like such an enigma, and now it makes perfect sense. Chapter 3, verse 3, he says, For you have died, and he's, he's offering this as a huge blessing to you, and reason why you should live for God. Why? For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We are in Christ in God. We are in Jesus' hand. Jesus is in the Father's hand. You are in him and in him. It's beautiful. 
This is the glorious language of union with Christ in the New Testament. Oh, beloved, what can be more precious to the life of a follower of Jesus than the majestic, monumental doctrine of union with Christ? And that brings us to, lastly, the, practical, the practice of union with Christ. And really, the rest of Colossians is about this, so I'm only going to touch on it. We might ask, however, why is Paul telling us all of this? Why is he pointing us back to union with Christ and all of its benefits? Why is he emphasizing the believer's union with Christ in this letter to the Colossians? Well, he tells us. Chapter 2, verse 4, he writes, I say this in order that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. Paul is Paul's concerned that, that well, he's convinced that knowing that these believers were united with Christ, the very creator, God, in whom resides all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, having that knowledge would help keep them from looking anywhere else for spiritual fullness, spiritual truth, spiritual experience. They didn't need worldly philosophy. They didn't need human psychology. They didn't need mysticism or legalism, or asceticism, which he's going to name here specifically as we go further. What they needed was, listen carefully, what they needed was what they already had. Because they had Christ. And they didn't have Christ in, in their back pocket. They didn't have Christ tucked in the back of their Bible. It wasn't like Christ is somehow outside and, and we tap into him when we need it. No, 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 no. We're in Christ. We're in Christ. And we miss it. We're, we're like fish who don't know we're living in water. We are in Christ. We're like a bird who doesn't know he lives in the air. We are in Christ all the time. The second, the second reason he tells us this is he wants the Colossians and us to understand that now that we know how God thinks of us and relates to us, by the way, notice the connection, the way he thinks about us is the way he relates to us. He wants us to know how God thinks about us and relates to us who are united in Christ because there is an expectation in here of growth and change. Now, so far in, I forget how many sermons I've done, eight sermons, we're in the second chapter. We're bouncing on... Uh, verse 6 of chapter 2, we're be beginning that next section. And you know what? Paul hasn't told us anything to do. He hasn't given us anything to do. There are no imperatives until we get here. All he's been doing is revealing Christ, revealing Christ, revealing Christ, revealing Christ. And then he will come back to it in the beginning of chapter 3 and says, set your mind on him, set your mind on him, set your mind on him. However, once you are truly in Christ, I mean, we cannot remain as we were. Christ is in us. We are in Christ. He never changes. We must change. We must become more like him for his great glory and our own great joy. Hence, Paul writes in Romans 6, verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was Christ raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What's, what's he saying? A changed life. Because you have been united, you've been baptized into Christ, you have all these resources, your life is going to change. It's not just that it should change, it's going to change. If you are really in Christ, it's going to change. The expectation is that our lives will not be unchanged by the power that we now possess by the virtue of our union with Christ we must participate in what God is doing and strive to become more like Christ even as he is empowering us to do that very thing verse 10 says this for the death he died he died to sin once for all but the life he lives he lives to God so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Which is just another way of saying that now you exist in Christ. The one thing we haven't mentioned is grace. You know where that is? It's in Christ with all of that other stuff, all those other things, all the other benefits that God has promised us. If you are in Christ, you must and you will change. Paul expects it. Not only of the ancient believers in Colossae, but also of believers in 21st century America. Beloved, do you see areas in your character that need to change? In Christ, you can change. Notice verse 6 of chapter 2 of Colossians. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. It's a new life. It's a new way to live. The God who reconciled you in Christ has provided everything you need to be transformed in Christ. So Paul says, walk in him. Now, I want to close this morning with a profound statement by Arthur Pink from the early 1900s about this doctrine. He once wrote these words, and, and I include this because as I was doing this study, I thought we... We hardly ever talk about these things. And this may very well be the most precious doctrine of all. And I was gratified after thinking that, that I discovered this statement by Arthur Pink. He said, the present writer, meaning himself, has not the least doubt in his mind that the subject of spiritual union is the most important, the most profound, and yet the most blessed of any that is set forth in the sacred scriptures. And yet, sad to say, there is hardly any, there is hardly any which is now more generally neglected. The very expression spiritual union is unknown in most professing Christian circles. And even where it is employed, it is given such a protracted meaning as to take in only a fragment of this precious truth. And I say amen. I say amen. I, I just think we need to dive into this ocean and go as deep as we can and see what we can find and discover how we've been changed. Our time, our, I trust that our time this morning has whet your appetite to do a lot more of that, because all the divine treasures that belong to the children of God are wrapped up in union with Christ. Let's pray. Lord, words creak and groan under the weight of the majesty and glory of what we've just heard. Forgive this poor preacher for bumbling and stumbling over such treasure. Help us, Father, to think deeply on these things and to change because of it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.